Previously on Gigdamin Paws. Can you talk a little bit about how fashion expresses who you are for you? If I, um, I think everyone can agree that, you know, if you have a bad day, you just want to wear a hoodie and sweatpants and not do anything, you know. But to me, if I go out and dress up, even if it's just for me, because you don't dress up for other people, you do it for yourself. It makes me feel better and makes me, you know, when I see myself in, in like a window display, I'll be like, okay, this girl has her shit together. It has a good influence on me. You know, it's not only the mood, but also the kind of day that you have. Because some days I'm like, I, I woke up and I feel very bubbly and happy and I just want to be in all pink. And then the other day I'll be like, oh, I don't really want to talk to people, but I still want to dress up, but I'll dress in all black. And those, you know, simple things can really show either my mood or what kind of day it is. And I love those little details. Today on Gigdemin Powers. Well, we wear clothes every day. You know, um, it doesn't matter if you shop at Brooks Brothers or Gucci, or if you shop at Target or Ross, um, or even secondhand or thrift, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. We all wear clothes. We have personal reasons for why we choose our clothes. And we have personal bias about what clothing, different types of clothing tell us about people. But ultimately, clothing is expression and communication. It tells us your status. It tells us, you know, the things you think are most important to you. And um, as a result, when we walk into a meeting about a costume design, and people have a specific point of view on a character and then relate it back to themselves, their response to your design will always be the most personal in the room, right? So they can look at a production design and be pretty analytical about it. They can look at a prop design, be pretty analytical about it. As soon as we put people in clothing though, as soon as we put oh. them into clothing, their response becomes very personal. And it's something that we can't control, right? Because we have stereotypes and fears and insecurities and and um, how we perceive that character's flaws or strengths also, all of that's going to come into play. And it makes, it means that our jobs as costume designers become a lot harder and a lot more like managing personality. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson, and you are listening to Geekdom Empowers. Geekdom Empowers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people. It is us who make up almost all of the geek world by talking to each person, by hearing their story, Geekdom Empowers creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story and together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt. Today's guest is Gwyn Conaway, an American costume designer, a costume concept artist for film and TV shows, specifically science fiction, a fashion historian, and a professor of design. We will talk with her about so many things we never talked about on the show, from working on Star Trek Discovery to how people's biases are reflected in their choice of clothes. 
the difference between concept artists and costume designers, the difference between how Russian cosmonauts dressed and how American astronauts dressed, and so many other things. In addition to all this, she writes for Galactic Journey, which, if you remember just a few episodes ago, Gideon Marcus, creator of the Galactic Journey website, was a guest. The website follows science fiction in the past. It goes decades in the past, I think it's about 50 years or so, and just follows it week by week. And she writes for that too, and we're going to talk about the articles she writes to them about uh, fashion and surprising stuff. This episode's riveting. You should listen. But before we start, just letting you know that there's a baby in the show, and I'm keeping her in because there should be a baby in the show. Babies are a part of life, and this podcast is about authenticity and people's real lives. And sometimes, you know, actually most people have kids, and most people have to walk with kids around them, and that is reality, and that's the way it is. Also, it provides uh, one really funny moment in the middle, which I kept in. Just as a heads up, just as a heads up. My uh, my daughter's out in her playpen, but if she hears me talking, she might start screaming. So I have to go. I'll have to go no grab problem. her at some point. No problem. How old is she? Thank you. She's nine months. Oh. Yeah. That is the cute age. She's pretty cute. Yeah. She's pretty cute. Very nice. I have three daughters. That's what you said. How old are they? Eleven, nine, and five. Oh my gosh. So all of them had been. What do you think is the? <laughs> Why? <laughs> that's that's good. Then you know. What do you think is the hardest age so far? It's not the hardest age. It's mm-hmm. the personality. Mm-hmm. They all got. I was a hard-headed kid. Mm-hmm. Things my way, and my parents don't remember how hard. They, like they they don't. So I have three with growing, like exponentially growing hard-headedness. Like the first one was super hard-headed, then the second one was like 10 times that, and the third one was 10 times that. So, so oh no. Individualistic daughters who know what they want, which is great. But sometimes it's hard to do that. It is great. Of course. They embolden each other. Um, yeah, when, when they few, they, they teach each other how to behave. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming. And thank you for having me. And I, what is your origin story? Oh gosh. Well, um, it's really long and convoluted. Uh, first off, I work in entertainment, um, in filmmaking, mostly in television these days as a costume concept artist. But I'm also a professor of design, and I teach concept art um, at Art Center uh, College of Design in Pasadena, California. Wait, I want um, to get to those two things, but I want to start yeah. in the beginning. In the beginning, sure, sure. Like, so, um, uh, really, I um, grew up in a basically a circus family. My my parents and uh, all of my siblings at least dabbled in if not professionally work in entertainment, um, mostly live entertainment. So, you know, uh, my dad was a Shakespearean expert that acted out monologues for me as my bedtime stories. And my mother was a 
costume designer, which is what I ended up going to school for. Um, and, uh, and she literally trained clowns. So, you know, I, for my birthday, I went back and hung out with all the clowns at the circus. And it's a very, it's a very unusual upbringing, but I didn't realize that until I got much older. And, um, I spent my entire childhood drawing and reading and playing video games and then, uh, uh, and traveled a lot. Um, when I was in high school, I ended up being an exchange student in Japan, uh, in Hiroshima. And then after that, I got the bug and I just continued to study abroad, uh, well, almost well, obsessively. Well, what was Japan like? like? Did you know Japanese before you came? I took, basically I decided to go and then I, I took one semester of Japanese. So I knew, you know, very basic things like, hello, my name is so-and-so. I don't like to eat tomatoes. I'm 16 or I'm 15, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and that's it. And then I, I spent um, almost two school years there. I came back when I was almost 18 and, um, and graduated from my American high school at that point. Yeah. And you know Japanese today? I used to be very fluent. Um, but now I, I also went to college in South Korea. <laughs> so um, I speak Korean more, uh, a lot more. My daughter's half Korean. My husband uh, yeah. was a student in Korea with me. And then when we were dating, he transferred to a school here and uh, we got married shortly after. And his entire company and his family, uh, everyone speaks Korean. So, so our household does too. So when I speak Japanese, I'm still conversational, but I sound like a Korean person. You know, usually your second language is what you sound like in other languages. So it's flipped for sure. Interesting. So you got the bug for going abroad after Japan. Yes. And then you went to Korea immediately or did you go to other places? I went to other places. Um, I went to the Czech Republic and Poland and I studied Uh, ballet and opera there while I was teaching English in high school. Um, I went to Brazil uh, and was a field artist in the Atlantic rainforest for a summer. Uh, And I spent uh, about a year in Korea. And while I was there, I also went to Taiwan and um, uh, traipsed around Taiwan, sort of doing personal, personal study. What is a field, what's say field? A field artist? Yeah. So in Brazil, there was an ecological tour and I'm not an ecologist or biologist like everyone else that was on the trip, but they wanted somebody to go that could draw the experience, could, could keep a, a drawn journal of what they did um, and to entertain and play with the children in the village while the parents were teaching the ecologists about Um, cacao grafting and rubber tree uh, uh, farming and um, so so that's what I went along for I was I was the artist in the group and took a bunch of blue books and sharpies and you know things like that to play with the kids and what were you studying like much of that was studying right Mm, yeah that was uh, so I was a student but I didn't actually study while I was there it was more work Um, and then the others, there is a mixture of professors and dissertation doctorates and, uh, uh, undergrads. 
you know, all doing the ecology work. And then I, I would sit separate. So they were doing a lot of the scientific study and I was the observer uh, trying to document it. For those fields, like what field? Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, ecology and um, a lot of agricultural science. It had a lot, a lot to do with um, uh, genetically modifying cacao plants because there are, there are a lot of pests there that um, cause cacao to fail in Brazil. So they uh, were learning how to graft different cacao species together in order to make them more robust. And uh, they also looked at some fishing. Um, uh, there was one farmer that had uh, several ponds of fish that he would keep in the rainforest pretty far away from the ocean. And so that was very interesting to them. And he kept a, a really incredible garden for his wife that was grafted from uh, orchids. A lot of them were unique species. So there were a couple of biologists uh, that were there, or botanists, to mm -hmm. study uh, his orchid garden. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's why I get to say my father, uh, I want to say created, not created, uh, discovered a spider. Okay. So you did all that, and uh, did you, is that, is that the thing you found yourself in? Is that the thing, the place you wanted to be? How did that go? Um, I did most of my study abroad because I was either ignorant about the place or it was hard. I, I usually did not choose going to places I was really um, personally super interested in because I wanted to expand my horizons. So most of my time there the way I justified it was by saying, when I get there, I'm going to study costume because ultimately I, I knew I would be a costume designer. And so I'd give myself personal goals for while I was uh, studying or working abroad and, um, you know, and try to, to take those experiences and include them in, in my personal point of view. Um, but honestly, when I was, when I was an undergrad, I thought that I would be a UN translator. I, I was kind of moving towards interpretation and communications, but no matter what I did, I couldn't get away from theater and costume design. And um, so I ended up ultimately pursuing that degree. Instead what does that of mean that, that you couldn't get away from it? I just, I just couldn't get away from it. My, my mother is a costume designer. I competed in costume design and won several awards while I was an undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was pursuing the degree, but I was also working on a Southeast Asian language degree. And uh, because of sort of bureaucratic reasons, I ended up not being able to complete that degree because I was too advanced in Japanese for it to count. So, um, uh, so I had to abandon that degree and ended up going only with theater. And the experience of losing my uh, linguistics degree was very bitter for me. So I, uh, I just threw myself into drama. Let me go grab my baby go, real go, go. quick. Yeah. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Okay. She's crawling around <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so that's kind of how I came about it. it, it's a family business, like I said, and um, 
everyone growing up was incredibly passionate about our work. It's what we talked about in our free time. It's what we did in our free time. It's, you know, our dinner conversations are always about entertainment and, and our, our passion for it. So I, I just naturally fell into it, even if I, I tried to throw myself far from the tree. Right. So before we move on to the next stage, what is your favorite Shakespeare soliloquy that your father used to say? Oh, man, that's, you know, I don't know if I can choose a soliloquy or a sonnet of his. There's so many. But um, uh, my fondest memories are from Love's Labor's Lost, which was my father's favorite mm -hmm. of his plays. And uh, he would, <laughs> much to my mother's um, upset, don't you dare turn off my computer, I see you. Much to my mother's upset, <laughs> he would say hello. 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 <laughs> Hi. Oh, yeah. Good girl. Hi. Hello. There you go. <laughs> so, much to my mother's um, scolding, mm. he would he would uh, recite many of those um, monologues to me at night. And they're always, you know, love labor's lost is a little raunchy. It's a, it's a little bit scandalous for the Catholic boy from New York. And so uh, he always just thought it was so entertaining and, and made it so fun for me. And then when he directed it, you know, he, um, he would get up on top of the director's table in the house of the theater and he would yell at his, his actors to get more passionate about the fact that they were Nope. <laughs> uh, the kid had turned off the conversation. <laughs> we'll be back after these messages. Ah. <laughs> uh. I am keeping Sorry. this in. I am keeping this in. You said turn off the computer and then you got turn off. <laughs> that is staying in. <laughs> she um she has this horrible habit of, of pressing the button on my tower. So I have my hand over it right now. So I asked. Ow, ow. Mm. Um, yeah, so Love's Labor's Lost is maybe my favorite. Love's Labor's Lost my favorite is, memory. Is, is, is the one where the earth must be peopled, right? That's oh, yes. Yeah, essentially, essentially a bunch of monks are, are um, lusting after potential wives, which always just made my dad laugh so much because he was a, um, uh, he's Catholic through and through, and he's from New York. And, you know, so when he was, in middle school, he was already drinking and smoking and gambling, and but he was being taught by Benedictine monks mm -hmm. that also, you know, they'd they'd hide alcohol inside of their AMC radios and in their thermoses. Oh. It just it just screamed to him his childhood and his upbringing. Like to him, it was one of the most 
realistic Catholic stories you could have about a bunch of monks. I just flashed back to what that is like three, four, five men, right? And then they each find a way out. Yes. Okay, got it. Yeah. They, okay. they woo some women. So uh, uh, let's move on. Let's move forward to uh, the next step in your origin story. What happened then? Um, well, after I was done with undergrad, uh, I went directly into grad school. I went to UC Irvine in California. And um, my husband and I got married 12 days, I think, before I had to move across the country. And, uh, and then I, I spent the next three years in, in graduate school for costume design and also did some productions, some, some theater productions outside of the university. I think I did 20 or 25 small scale productions professionally while I was a student. Um, and and uh, that's when I started getting really interested in uh, gaming and feature animation. And I saw a, I saw a real um, problem between the way uh, costume designers are taught and the way concept artists are taught. Um, there's a huge difference and a drastically different point of view and sets of priorities between the two, but they're both trying to tell story with characters uh, and show the history and the personalities and the, the arc of a character. What are some of the differences? Mm, oh, they're... There are a lot of them, but essentially it comes down to training. Uh, concept artists are taught technique over everything else. Um, for a concept artist, the final asset is usually a flat or digital uh, thing, right? It's, it's flat, it's digital. Um, it can either be a piece of concept art, a character design, or it can even be a 3D model or an animation. Um, because of that, their technical skill is the number one most important thing in their training. So they're taught first and foremost how to make something compositionally interesting, shape language, uh, material language, but they're taught those things rather separately. And they don't always associate their technical skill with storytelling. Uh, so they kind of go from tableau to tableau to tableau and they learn their technical skills that way. But a costume designer, is taught first and foremost to analyze the story and the character arc and psychology. So our work is very heavy into research. We almost skip the, the sketching phase. You know, it's not emphasized heavily in our training. And uh, our final asset is an actor or performer wearing clothing and assuming the role of the character. So for us, first and foremost is storytelling and tailoring, you know, these tactile skills. While the concept artist, their first and foremost priority is going to be a digital technique. And, mm -hmm. uh, so what it leads to in, in the industry is that, you know, concept artists are very good at getting approval, right? They have a lot of design trust because we can see their design before it's built and the what they what they produce is is often very high quality right so it's either very heavy realism or it's very uh very 
professionally stylized, you know, there's a, a lot of intense skill in the presentation of the idea, right? Uh, but a costume designer doesn't have that, that skill for the approval phase, but then they have all of the skills for managing the costume department and tailoring fit, building, et cetera, all of these other things that you need uh, in, in the department. So it's, it's become incredibly important for concept artists and costume designers to collaborate and work together, but they don't quite understand always, they don't quite understand how their training differs and, and uh, what they bring to a design collaboration. Um, that is still something that not everybody is on board with or, or really has a good grasp of. It really depends on if you were um, uh, exposed to that in your training or not. And usually the cases that you're not. Many times in the really, the really good costume design shows the story for the design. Um, because yeah. people change as they change, something happens to the clothes or they wear different clothes and you can see how they develop over time. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay, so you saw that difference and uh, I think I stopped you before you said what you were going to do about it. Oh, well, I graduated from, from my university and I had tried to pursue some game design. While I was there, uh, a little bit more interest in illustration than what my traditional classes were for my degree. And then I got out into um, working and I, I knew that I was still pretty weak at techniques. So I went back and, and took classes at a community college at Fullerton Community College and um, had this wonderful teacher named Mike Sheehan. And he was uh, an Imagineer and, and uh, uh, an incredible illustrator, just of anything. He's a savant, essentially. And his class was just to keep a sketchbook and um, produce you know, 10 to 20 pages in a sketchbook each week. Mm. And the amount of um, skill I acquired during that single class was just unbelievable. And uh, you know, the, the diligence that's required to, to keep and maintain sketchbooks like that. It just, it elevated my, my work so much, you know, from a costume designer's point of view and also um, a concept artist's point of view. And so I, I continued to kind of do my own illustrations and to work in that way um, and started to move into, into film as a con costume designer and as a costume crew. Um, an assistant designer, a breakdown artist, that sort of thing. And, you know, long story short, I ended up at Art Center teaching uh, history of fashion. Now I teach studios and costume design as well and world building, uh, building cultures from the ground up research, that sort of thing. And I also work as a costume concept artist for, for film and television. That's yeah. great. How do you uh, world build? Like how do I what? World build. Oh, that's a that's a really big uh, answer. It really depends on what kind of story you're telling. Mm -hmm. You know, so the first thing you have to ask is um, how far is it? I mean, there are some very specific questions you have to ask first. First off, what kind of story or narrative are you telling? Is it going to be... Um, are you looking through a window into other people's lives or are you an active participant in the camera? 
So if you're actively participating, then it's much more emotional, it's more sensory. So you need to design with that in mind. Um, if you're looking through a window, it tends to rely more on accuracy, particularly if it's historical in nature. And then also, is it linear or is it open world? If you're doing open world uh, building, which is what most of world building is these days, then open world requires you to essentially build a map of cultures. You have to get your hands into trade routes and resources that different people or different groups have available. How far are they away from other people? How difficult is it to get to them? Um, do they have a lot of physical infrastructure? You know, these are the kinds of questions that you have to ask. So there are a lot of, a lot of big questions uh, to ask at the beginning and then to decide the answers. And once you do that, you can start to build out, uh, you know, a culture from there. And you do a lot of uh, futuristic stuff too, right? I mostly work in sci-fi now, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, as a concept artist and as a teacher, I, I mostly teach uh, sci-fi projects as well. So I'm like my listeners are mm -hmm. science fiction fantasy fans. So I'd like to like stay on that. Like what kind of things do you see uh, at work? Like uh, what kind of shows do you help with? What kind of worlds do you help build? Uh, well, I've, I've worked with super villains at Disney. Um, I was also the costume concept artist and uh, textile designer for Judas and the Black Messiah. And that's, that's historical, but it's still, you know, Oscar winning. Um, and right now I'm on Star Trek Discovery. Uh, so, I've seen that yeah. show, yes. So <laughs> yeah. let's talk about Star Trek Discovery, if you can. Very little, but yes, I, maybe a little. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you tell me, I don't know what the part is, like the costumes, what, you, mm -hmm. what they're basically doing in the last uh, two seasons now, they went far, far into the future where we haven't been yet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like... Is that part of what you did to, uh, 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 as far as the costume and world building? Or? So as a costume concept artist, uh, it really depends on who I'm working with, how much um, design burden I have. Uh, so some designers are going to give me a very loose research and very loose ideas Mm -hmm. and say, give me some options, in which case I am doing a lot of world building. In the case of working on something like Star Trek, I, and that, that was the case with, with uh, you know, Disney in some, some ways. Um, in the case of something like Star Trek, my current designer is uh, um, incredibly thorough. What are you doing? Are you getting into that? Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's so sweet. Okay. So um, my current designer is, is incredibly thorough. And uh, so sometimes I, I make design leaps, you know, and, and offer alternatives to what he's uh, um, given me direction on. But otherwise, a lot of it is trying to realize his idea and make it as, you know, realistic for approval as possible. So you know, at, at the moment, I'm not doing a lot of world building per se, but, you know, the, the time aspects of, of discovery are, are still um, alive and well in the show. And, 
And uh, so we do we do have to work with that and, and kind of take the entire IP, um, the entire Star Trek property right. into account when when we're working on our stuff. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a broader question about that, just because sure. this is something I know. Uh, yeah. in, um, so there's so much history to start like we can see different generations in different uh, series mm -hmm. and uh, uh, things were done differently evolved change and stuff like that how like do you look uh, uh, not just to see what they were but also to correct mistakes to uh you know what are your thoughts about the past and how it's different from the way like doing it now say for startup discovery so my my thoughts on on Star Trek in general uh, at this point is that the you know the TV series and its origins was so connected to uh, you know current current politics and and current events and it, it seemed um, uh, very intrinsic to the writing and and was so incredibly important to the American discourse you know the social discourse. Um, now, you know, the IP, I think, has moved away from that model quite a bit. Um, and for, for good things and for bad, you know, there are things that I absolutely love about the original that are uh, no longer a part of the IP, or at least not at the moment. And, um, uh, and then there are other things that I really appreciate about how it's changed. You know, for example, um, diversity is so uh, important in the series. And that is true from the very beginning, of course, but now it's it's using its power as a very large IP to lift up characters and performers and actors that um, maybe otherwise would not be given a dramatic role, you know, because they don't fit the Hollywood standard or what used to be. It's not really that way uh, so much anymore, at least from the inside, um, in my experience, my, my limited experience. So uh, I think those are, those are my general thoughts on Star Trek at the moment. Um, as for working on the show, it's, it's an incredibly wonderful experience. It's a huge operation. Uh, and, you know, I, I really love my coworkers. I think it's been really wonderful so far. It looks like it sets high standards in everything that I can see in it. So It, uh, it definitely does, yes. Yeah. Okay, so I stopped you because you said stop. So what else? That's okay. Uh, what kind of projects are you uh, working on or worked on as well? Uh, well, those are the big ones. Um, I've also done, you know, other things for uh, Universal Beijing, the um, studio tours. I've worked with Jason Momoa's production company as a senior breakdown artist and assistant mm -hmm. costume designer. Um uh, and I, I also do a lot of virtual reality design. That's more commercial though. So a lot of that is um, uh, for large commercial companies like Ford and Toyota, Canon cameras, Adidas, uh, that sort of thing. And that's, that's the bulk of my design work is in VR now. Wait, so let's talk about VR. Like what kind, sure. what kind of things are needed for that? Like if you're doing something mm. from those companies. Well, in costumes specifically, a couple of really important things are shoes, because it's it's very novel to watch something in VR. So one of the first thing people do is look down at their feet. You know, they look up at the sky, they look around like this, and then they look down at their feet. 
And that's not something that we ever think about in, uh, in costume designing film, unless it's specifically pointed out in the script. Um, otherwise, we just kind of assume that from the knees down, they're gonna you know, not be very descriptive. Um, the other thing is, if we have uh, characters where it's point of view, so you are the character, right? Um, if you are the character and you're looking around, then from basically here down, from the middle of your chest down and your wrists here need to be really identifiable. So um, I recently did a project where we had twins and it was played by the same man, but they were supposed to be identical twins. And I had to uh, specifically choose a single pair of shoes for each of them and, and specifically different watches or wristbands or rings uh, and then they had to be consistent no matter what, even though the story took place over several days, those two elements had to stay consistent or else they wouldn't know the, you know, the, um, the audience wouldn't know which twin they were. So, you know, those kinds of things are, are definitely things to think about. Also Ooh. making sure that you don't have a low neckline because if the person yeah. looks down, then you can see into someone's shirt. Oh. Uh, as an example, <laughs> you know, so there's some things like that. Um, the cameras are also not as high resolution yet. So um, uh, I have to be more careful about textures and patterns and contrast than I do with regular film. And that's definitely a more difficult part of uh, the process. You have to be really selective. Um, and really aware of that on in VR. And as for the production overall, not just costumes, uh, natural light is really important. Um, and you know, it depends on if you're using a 180 camera or a 360 camera, but either way, anything that you use to light the space has to, um, uh, pretty much be overhead so that you can stitch it out so you can get rid of it because anything that you have sort of lighting around the space uh, is going to be really difficult to pull out of the um, uh, out of the shot so we have very little control over lighting uh, I'd say that's probably the biggest the biggest concern we usually have yeah and so uh and what's the biggest challenge in doing all the things you're doing? For doing things in VR? No, just in general, for the things that you do in general. Oh, um, okay, I'm gonna give you my favorite response, which is hangers. I hate hangers, clothes hangers. Mm -hmm. I hate them. I hate them more than I hate difficult talent or producers or whoever. I think that hangers are the bane of my existence. And if I have to, pull out like a knot of hangers. I, I almost always make my assistant do it instead because it stresses me out so much. So I'm going to say hangers, okay. but um, probably the actual, yeah, the actually more difficult thing is staying calm and remembering that uh, critique isn't personal. Um, you know, our, our job is, is full of critique. I get critique every day 
even though I'm a senior artist and um, teach others how to do this work. I get critique every single day. And uh, when you, if you take that personally, if you put yourself too much into your work, it can be very, um, very bad for your mental health, right? And you start to question yeah. your ability and uh, you, you end up not improving on your skills because you, you think it's hopeless. And I, I think a lot of people have, you know, difficulty with that. And luckily I don't anymore, almost never, but um, that is, that is probably the most difficult part of the job is constant critique and, and having to compromise because it's entertainment is always collaborative, right? You're never the last say on a design. There's always someone after you that is going to affect your design and your choices. Do you agree? She doesn't have to compromise yet. (laughs) She doesn't have to compromise yet. Nope. Nope, she's still good. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And what's it like to to teach? It's incredibly fulfilling. Um, I think it's what keeps me passionate. I, uh, I teach history of fashion, like I said. Um, say hi. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're so good. She's just learning how to wave. <laughs> um, so uh, I teach history of fashion and that is geared towards using it as a tool for concept artists. So I'm really specific about them understanding how, how it fits into context, how clothing fits into context, because I think clothing is very misunderstood generally. Um, and then, uh, I also teach Korean production design and world costume design and, um, mentor seniors, uh, for their exit portfolios and all of those things, um, uh, you know, they just being surrounded by people that you can contribute to their success is just the best high, you know, there's, there's nothing quite like walking into a room of tired students and watching them leave with smiles and hope. <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of how I, how I think of it. I really, there's no better way, I think, for me to give back than to teach. Nice. And I, I want to get stuck on something you said. Uh, um, clothing is misunderstood. Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, we wear clothes every day. You know, um, it doesn't matter if you shop at Brooks Brothers or Gucci, or if you shop at Target or Ross, um, or even secondhand or thrift, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. We all wear clothes. We have personal reasons for why we choose our clothes. And we have personal bias about what clothing, different types of clothing tell us about people. But ultimately, Clothing is expression and communication. It tells us your status. It tells us, you know, the things you think are most important to you. And um, as a result, when we walk into a meeting about a costume design and people have a specific point of view on a character and then relate it back to themselves, their response to your design will always be the most personal in the room. Right. So they can look at a production design and be pretty analytical about it. They can look at a prop design, be pretty analytical about it. As soon as we put people in clothing, though, 
As soon as we put oh. them into clothing, their response becomes very personal. And it's something that we can't control, right? Because we have stereotypes and fears and insecurities and, and um, how we perceive that character's flaws or strengths also. All of that's going to come into play. And it makes... It means that our jobs as costume designers become a lot harder and a lot more like managing personality because we have to convince the, the room that our design is the clearest and most connected to what the character actually needs or the IP actually needs or the aesthetic. It's just a lot of juggling plates. And then the other thing is because people wear clothing a lot, they think that it costs much less than what it actually does because their t-shirt that they got at Target was $20, $10. (laughs) Thank you. Was $10 or $20. Um, But the t-shirt that we need to buy for our costume design is 50 or 75. And the reason for that, there's so many specific reasons for it that we would have to do that, right? It matches the design, the quality of the um, drape of the fabric is more important. The depth of the texture isn't as flat. You know, there are all sorts of reasons that we might need to do that. But because this person has a specific idea of how much they personally would spend on a t-shirt, then that also, we have to fight that battle, um, uh, you know, to make to make ourselves more legitimate. You know, it's constantly a question of is a costume designer legitimate or not. When you walk into the room, you assume that you're going to have to fight that fight. Well, and you have to get over biases that people don't even know they have over specific types of yes. clothes. And each person has a different bias. Yes. It's a lot of psychology. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, some, some programs I think require their costume design students to take a psychology class specifically for that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, an interesting story perhaps is, uh, one time I worked on a film, I was not the designer. Um, and one of the executive producers hated plaid, but we were designing, we were working on a film, uh, that was about cowboys, American cowboys. And we couldn't use plaid, but not only plaid, we couldn't use gingham, windowpane, checkers, tartan, nothing, nothing that resembled a plaid was uh, ever approved for the show. Even though that was an incredibly, um, you know, quintessential fabric for men in mid-America and, and we couldn't use it because of a personal bias. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, let's talk about Galactic Journey. Yeah. How'd you get there? What is it you do there? Uh, I was showing illustrations at WonderCon for fun. Mm -hmm. And Gideon, who's the editor, he walked up to me. I think you did an interview with him as well. Yes, on the show. Yes. Yes. Uh, So he walked up to me and started talking to me about my illustrations and found out what I actually did for a living, which was not illustration at the time. And... Give me that, thank you. And uh, and he just asked me point blank if I wanted to write some articles for him. And I've been writing ever since. <laughs> I think that's, I think it's been five years. And it just continued to 
go on and go on and go on. And when I, when I first started, um, one of the reasons why he asked me, I think, is because one of my big um, expertise or specialties, I suppose, is fear and why we wear clothing because of our fears on a very grand scale, a social scale and on a personal scale. Um, those two things are, are pretty important to what we choose to wear. Mm. And um, so uh, that was very interesting to him because of the Cold War. And, you know, obviously uh, we're writing um, for the galactic journey as we go through time currently in the middle of the Cold War. So that's, that's I think, what made us first connect and, and why I continued to write for them. And what kind of, like, for, give an example to people who have a purchase, like, what kind of articles do you write? Mm. Uh, well, I write pretty much only on fashion. You stop that. Ooh, there you go. So I write pretty much all fashion articles, fashion and culture. And a lot of them have to do with um, uh, some, some examples, let's say, are uh, Jeffrey Bean, who's a photographer from the mid 60s. I'm sorry, is a fashion designer from the mid 60s. Um, Truman Capote's uh, Black and White Ball, uh, which was considered maybe one of the biggest parties of the century that happened just last year, I think, in Galactic Journey, so 1966. Uh, um, also, the invention of the Mach 4 spacesuit uh, and how it differs from the cosmonaut suit, which is pretty interesting. It shows such a huge gap or uh, distance in ideals between the USSR and America during the wait, space wait, race. Stop. I What's the difference? I never thought about that. What's the difference? Like, oh well, I mean, straight up, the first thing is is that we have utilitarian fabrics chosen for the cosmonaut suits. I, I believe they were orange canvas mm. um, for their basic suits. The American Mach Four was made of silver lame. So um, the cosmonaut suit was meant to reflect the working class man. It was meant to make the cosmonaut look like they were every man, right? Um, whereas the American suit, the astronaut was put on a pedestal to be seen as the future, uh, as the ideal of the country. The so two, yeah. yeah, so two, two drastically, drastically different uh, perspectives on, on what cosmonauts or astronauts were supposed to represent. <laughs> and um, then also the reasons why the Mach 4 was chosen, there were several, I think over 100, 150 different uh, um, sample spacesuits that they that NASA considered at the time, and they ended up with the Mach Four um, uh, for for specific reasons, right? Um, uh, rouging in the in the joints that made it easier to bend in uh, a pressurized suit. Um, uh, flashlights or torches, little torches in the index fingers of the gloves. Um, a waffle uh, insulated undersuit so that it could, you know, more easily uh, um, ventilate air uh, through through the body, it, you know, so those kinds of things also, and, and like how they pushed the Mach 4 is really interesting. So they made it super, super light, as, as light as they possibly could. And then NASA said, no, nah, we don't need it to be that light. They just wanted to make sure that they could. And then they pushed back again 
and uh, only accepted it after it had been pushed to its extremes in both directions. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting to read back on that history. I never thought that, that so much thought in so many trials related to that. Do you know oh, yeah. if, uh, if it was designed by uh, men or by women? It was designed by a man. Um, he had originally, I don't remember his name now. It's in my, it's in my article. Um, he's from Ohio and he's part of the larger company that made them. It might've been DuPont. I don't, I don't think it was, but um, uh, he had originally started off making dive suits um, in the 1930s, I believe, and then flight suits for World War II. And um, flight suits are also pressurized. And so he had already had some experience with. Yeah, you want to come up? Okay, are you going to be good? Or are you going to wiggle? Hi, wiggle butt. So, um, hello again. Say hello. Hello. Hi, guy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so he already had a leg up in, in trying to figure out how to make hand joints work and all that stuff for pilots. Um, and ultimately he was the one that was successful. I think there were three major companies that were involved in the bid for the spacesuit, that original mm -hmm. spacesuit. Yeah. Interesting. And I stopped you there, but you were about to name like about two more kind of uh, articles. That you uh, oh yes. Um, first ladies and seasonal dress. Sometimes I'll do some on that. So like basic silhouettes and what to look for that season. Um, uh, an interesting thing to track through history is when we prefer organic florals or uh, natural motifs versus abstract florals. And usually those coincide with periods of tension or fear um, for abstract uh, abstract things. And then for economic stability and growth, we see more naturalistic uh, florals, that kind of thing. So I point that stuff out in my articles. Thanks, great. Is there anything you wanted to cover that we didn't cover that you want to go over? Mm, I do have a book out. Um, oh, let's talk about it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's called Talking Threads. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is um, costume design for animation, illustration, and gaming. And uh, it's through Design Studio Press. It just came out. And it's kind of the, the Bible for those, um, for concept artists, to start thinking critically about story arc and clothing uh, and world building. My, my chapters in the book are all about culture and world building. Amazing, thank you. So people can find it in stores on Amazon? Or... Yeah, you can find it um, almost anywhere. You can find it definitely on Amazon um, and it's called Talking Threads. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You. It was wonderful bye -bye. to meet you, Guy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Say bye-bye, you little troublemaker. <laughs> Thank you so much to Gwyn Conaway. You can find Gwyn here. All the links to Gwyn's uh, websites, the book, everything is in the show notes. Now, next time, because there's always a next time, we take a look at Lucifer. Mo ha 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 what do you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at gigdominpals.com. That's G-U-Y.H-A-S-O-N at gigdominpals.com. The website is gigdominpals.com on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. 
We are at Geek the Mean Pals on YouTube. Check out the live episode. This episode is going to be up in about two weeks. The other episodes uh, are being uploaded as we speak. And if you want to check out my other podcast, the Squash Butler Dies podcast, that's a fiction podcast. It's fantasy. It's about a girl who lives in dreams, and we follow her from birth to death in a way that's never been done before. So the Squash Buckler Diaries podcast, if you want. I will see you next time, and for now, have an empowered day.